The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. We are going to jump right into Matthew 23. This is where we have been working through the book of Matthew. So if you're uh, new to the Bible, this is like, uh, like the last quarter of the Bible. Like if you cut the Bible in four quarters, it's going to be right around that like last quarter part of the Bible. Uh, Matthew 23. And... So what we're going to do is, uh, this morning, I'm going to pray for us as we look through this book together, this chapter together, and then we're going to look at this section by section as we move through Matthew 23. So let me pray for us, and then we will begin to look at this together. Father, as we uh, look at this chapter about the last week of Jesus' life, I pray, Father, that you would help us to be humble people to receive your word, and to follow our humble king. Because we need him, and you are eager to help us to change, to be like him, because of who he is. And so we pray this in his name. Amen. I don't know how familiar you are with Matthew 23, but as we've been looking through the, the chapters leading up to this, Jesus has been coming into Jerusalem. Right? He has been orchestrating this whole uh, party coming into Jerusalem saying, I'm the king, I'm a good king, I'm a gracious king, but I'm here to do business, right? He's not playing around. And he has uh, growing tensions with the religious leaders. And so you might call chapter 23, Jesus' breakup song with Jerusalem, right? This is where he uh, breaks up, so to speak, with Jerusalem, with the Israel, Israelite people. Um, and just like if any of you have walked through a breakup or anything like that, it's very sad. And Jesus is angry. And so when we look at this chapter, we're going to see, uh, we tend to think of Jesus as being very gentle and caring. Uh, these are some harsh words that Jesus is bringing to the table here. He is uh, not pulling any punches. And we're calling this Jesus versus religion, not because religion is bad, so to speak. Um, actually, the Bible commends religion. But one way of thinking about religion is uh, the negative or the bad version of religion is basically uh, proving ourselves to God or having um, spiritual life without God and um, posturing and that type of thing. And Jesus is coming to basically expose um, how dangerous and deadly that is. It's kind of like, um, I don't know who grew up watching Looney Tunes, but you know how um, Wiley Coyote and Roadrunner, like they have like this like long stand standing um, battle, so to speak. And what, what does Coyote do, right? He sets up all these like random contraptions to try to kill the roadrunner, right? But, what, but who knows what, what always happens? They always, <laughs> they always kill him, right? They always fall on him. That's, Jesus is coming into town and saying, you guys are doing all of this work to prove how great you are and how good you are, but it's actually killing you rather than accomplishing what you're trying to do. That's, that's, that's kind of what's happening in Matthew 23. So as we work through this, this is not necessarily saying um, organized religion is bad or all of your pastors are horrible people. <laughs> Jesus is coming in and going after the heart of what's going on in, uh, in bad versions of religion and bad versions of God's place and people. And what we need to do, I'm not sure how many of us come from like strict or harsh religious backgrounds, but as we look through this, it's tempting to take these and say, yeah, those guys over there, they need to hear this sermon. They need to hear this passage. We need to take this as primarily aiming at our hearts because we, just like the Pharisees, 
are tempted to do religion, to do faith, to do life under Jesus' banner without Jesus at all. And what we're aiming at in this is to lean into our humble king, to be humble servants under him. So I'm going to read through the first 12 verses, and then we'll start breaking down the rest of the chapter. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees, sit on Moses' seat, so do do and observe whatever they tell you, but do not do the works they do. So he's beginning to build this contrast. For they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens and hard, hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, and they themselves are not willing to move them with one finger. They do all their deeds to, see, to be seen by others, for they make their, I had to practice this word, palicateries, right? Good job. Yeah, trying. I practiced it like five times. Broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues, and greetings in the marketplaces, and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. You see, uh, Jesus is not, um, he's not mincing words, right? He is playing for keeps. He is going after the Pharisees and the scribes, and he is beginning to show how their whole religious construction, their whole religious operation was destructive, destructive for them and for the people they were caring for, right? They talks about, right, they lay up all these practices, these great ideas. Hey, here's a way to obey God in a practical way, and they lay it down on people in a way that gives no help, provides no grace, shows no direction for what it means uh, for helping them to live their lives under God. See, the Bible, one of the things the Bible does in these sort of contexts is it uses negative words to try to draw not only the correction but to then also commend a direction. So like at the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not murder, or I just repeated two, right? So, you know, the adultery, murder, see, I'm going to do them on the spot. But the negative ones are commending, right? So don't, don't commit murder. Well, the positive direction of that is care for life, right? Care for people, preserve and help people grow and thrive in their lives. So there's there's a negative side because our hearts, so wrapped up in our sin, need that sort of scalpel to kind of cut open the scab. And Jesus is doing that so that He can help us to grow, to become broken people who grow. And so what we're going to do is, as you see here in verse 11, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. What we're going to look at is how Jesus condemns the religious and calls us to be humble servants, right? He is creating this contrast between the religious and the humble servants because at the core of this passage is Jesus, who is the humble servant, who leads us to be like him. So we're going to be looking at these contrasts as we work through these passages. So the first one we're going to look at uh, is this first uh, verses 13 and 15. Just by the way, uh, verses 14 is not included in most of our Bibles because uh, the oldest and most reliable manuscripts of the Bible don't include it. 
So that's just that's why it's there. That's why we have good scholars who do great work on the Bible to help us understand uh, what was originally written and given to us by God. And so, verse thirteen, we're going to see this contrast: the religious thrive by providing by proving their righteousness; humble servants thrive by proving His goodness. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, a disciple, right, a convert. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice a child of hell as yourselves. You see, what Jesus is drawing their attention to is that the, re- the religious leaders of the time had created um, an entire dynamic of having good biblical wisdom in their lives, right? But they had done it in a way of posturing themselves and preferring their own position rather than leaning into the needs of others, leaning into the character of God. By the way, just to kind of pull from those verses leading up to this where he says, you don't call anybody a rabbi or teacher or instructor, right? This isn't saying uh, you don't ever call your dad, dad, (laughs) or you don't have fathers in the faith, or you shouldn't say, this is pastor so-and-so or whatever, what he is drawing their attention to is they were um, building their identity based on uh, the placement of somebody else. Like, if I was Drake's friend, like, it would be like, everybody would know that I was Drake's friend. Like, I know Drake, and he is my friend, and we're besties, and I get positioned, right? We become the posse that kind of hangs out with him, right? Drake's a rapper for folks who don't know. (laughs) Yeah, no. Kanye West, come on. Do you guys watch TV? Do you know what TV is? Have you heard about the internet? Um, the, uh, but if, so that's what they're, they were presenting their posture and they were getting their goodness and their place in life, right? Their righteousness, their goodness in life was based on not only their own kind of like self-conceited ideas of like, these are the in-house rules and whoever obeys them gets to be gooder than the other people, but they're going to base it on the goodness of other people, right? They had this whole system of I'm with so-and-so and I uphold the status quo, Right? It's not always bad. There is a place to be said of there are biblical principles that we want to live by. But people who don't live by them are not lesser than other people. That's what they were doing. They were self-focused on their desire to have good lives. My marriage is intact. I I, I donate to the right causes. I'm involved. But it was all about themselves. It was all about proving, right? themselves, validating their own opinion. I don't know if you've ever done this, but this is, at times, um, the way our uh, non-Christian friends can experience our Christianity at times. Trying to prove, if you just convert, if I can just convince you enough, if I can just kind of show you how good I am, then maybe uh, you'll see that Jesus is true, and then um, I'll feel better about myself. I feel better like I've convinced you that this is right and good. We can have uh, good opinions and right postures about things for the wrong reasons, right? It's good to want to share Jesus with people. It's good to have uh, committed to the right causes, but we can do it in a wrong way. For example, uh, there's, a church, a, there's a church of ours down in Texas that was recently uh, protested uh, by a pro-life movement, um, which is strange because the church is committed to pro-life causes. But 
the group that was protesting them, like legitimately standing out in front of the church on a Sunday morning with signs, was saying, well, you're not committed enough. You're not committed enough in the way that we are. And uh, we can do that with issues, right? We can become issue-focused of like, well, you're committed to caring for this issue. You're committed to loving God. Are you committed to these disciples or disciplines in your life? But you're not committed enough like me. Right, this is, this is the religious thrive by proving their rightness, always trying to like one-up each other. And Jesus is drawing our attention to say, no, 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 there are people that would know and engage and love and thrive in the presence of God, but by your posture towards other people, by trying to prove how good you are, you're actually shutting the door in their face of questions and, and, and interests that they would have otherwise had because Jesus is focusing on not making people children of hell, did you see that verse 15, right? By this posture, you are converting people to your party line and making them children of hell. You see the, the direction Jesus is drawing us towards. I want children of heaven that are focused on who God is and how good he is, right? Did you, there's a part of this at the end of the book of Matthew where we are beginning to mirror the beginning of Matthew, and what does Jesus do at the beginning of the book of Matthew? He draws out in the Beatitudes, what does it mean? The heart of a thriving, God-focused, Christ-enjoying life. <laughs> what does he draw out? Can we throw out one of the Beatitudes here? His next, there we go. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Right? Poor in spirit, go back, poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek. That is not, that's not the same as those who are posturing and religious and kind of proving themselves to other people. The poor in spirit, those who know, God, you are too good for me. Those who mourn, God, I've sinned against you. Those who are meek, God, I don't have any claim on my life. Those are humble servants. The humble servants thrive because... What is, what's happening all in this book? <laughs> Jesus is pursuing dirtbags like us <laughs> to make us children of heaven, to make us sons of the living God so that we can enjoy his goodness and live lives that thrive not on how good we are. Look how postured I am. I've done my devotions every day this week and I've given to the church and all this stuff. But so that we can have broken lives that say, God, I'm humbled that you would pay attention to somebody like me. And I just want people to know how good you are. Right? There's a difference of orientation there, right? Self-focused versus God-focused. Now, here's a problem that we're going to face, because I'm going to go off on each of these, and we need to kind of stay focused so we get through the whole chapter. So you guys cool if we just move on to the next section? And understand, we could say more about each one of these, but we're just going to move on. The religious, second section, the religious are blinded by superficial details. Humble servants are guided by God's character. 16 to 22, woe to you blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that, you are, that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater? The gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred. So whoever swears by the altar 
swears by it and every, by everything on it. But whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and him who sits on it, upon it. You see, they, had, they were basically kind of, they had had their whole religious code and they had their policy manuals out and they were all kind of looking at their religious life together and they said, well, you know what? The furniture of God's house really doesn't do anything. <laughs> but the, the sacrifice on the altar or the, the money that's given, that does something, that accomplishes something. So that must be, that must be where the binding stuff happens. And so if I make an oath by it, um, if I swear, um, I don't know if you guys ever, like, were, like, I maybe grew up in, like, a pagan context, but, like, you'd swear by your mother <laughs> or something like that. I swear by your mother's grave or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's like swearing, like, this is like swearing on your mother's life versus swearing on your mother's shoes, right? <laughs> like, or like you're swearing on your mother's favorite chair in the living room, right? It's like, well, your mom's more important than the chair or the shoes. That's kind of the situation they were developing. Like, yeah, but the shoes do something, right? <laughs> and Jesus is drawing their attention saying, you guys are like all whacked out. You're all focused on these superficial details and you're forgetting who dwells in the temple. God himself but that's why he says actually three times in this passage, you blind fools, right? Verse 16, you blind guides. Verse 17, you blind fools. Verse 19, you blind men. You have so focused in, right? Remember how Jesus talks about the log and the eye and the speck? You so focused in on the minutia details that you have missed the picture, right? You have missed what's going down. You have missed the major reality that God himself is in the temple. And why is God in the temple? Because God loves broken, needy people who don't have their act together to give them grace and to forgive sin. Right? That's what God's doing in the temple, right? The whole, they're getting all kind of like figured out, like focused on the temple, and they are missing. God is gracious and near in the temple. Right? This is what happens often in churches where we begin to have an inward versus an outward orientation an inward orientation on the internal life of the church where we focus in on settling all the details and getting everything right and like, not just like the carpet color, but also just kind of like getting everything precise. We're just gonna make sure the ship runs at a smooth operation and we're all satisfied. We've all got our things together, get it all kind of lined up. But the temple existed in the entire Old Testament to show the entire world that God comes and dwells with broken people. And to not only call the nations to him, but to send his people out to the nations. The purpose of the temple was to show God is here on a mission for other people, which we have to guard against in our church is being so focused on making sure that we get the inward dynamics fixed, that we neglect the outward orientation because Jesus here is saying, humble servants are guided by God's character. God's character is a pursuing goodness of other people. God pursues other people to give them grace. You see this and how Jesus, uh, or later in the New Testament, it talks about the life of the church. First Peter 2.9, or 2, uh, yeah, First Peter 2.9, can you throw that up? But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see, 
the priesthood, we are, if, you're, if you're in Jesus, you're a priest, not because you earn God's favor, but because God has given you grace and mercy in Jesus. And the purpose, the priest would go into the temple, they would make a sacrifice, and they would take it out to the people. That is the orientation of the church. The, the, the church is outward oriented because it's, you see how they were all focused in on what's going on the internal mechanisms inside the building. And Jesus is saying the purpose of what happens in the temple is so that you can take it to other people, give them the grace. Right? This is why Jesus talks about being uh, people who are meek and gentle, gracious and caring for our neighbors. And you just talked about in Matthew 22, right? <laughs> to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. Right? We, what, are I, what is the grace that our neighbors need? What, what is the mercy that our neighbors need? What is the gentleness that our neighbors need? People, Yes, people who are focused on outward orientation of God's character and not focused in on the superficial details. Right? We, are not, uh, we are not to be assassinators of each other. We're supposed to be servants of the people around us. For, we're going to pick up verse 23, right? We've got to keep this moving. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe... Mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Those you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining on a gnat and swallowing a camel. The religious, the way we're phrasing this, the religious care about their personal well-being. Humble servants care about the well-being of others. Right. The reason I'm saying this uh, well-being of ourselves versus the well-being of others is that, you see, Jesus is not saying you shouldn't tithe, right? He's saying... That's fine. Do that. But you can do that in a way that's like, um, I've gotten all my life together, right? I've gotten everything kind of focused in. I'm like healthy on all, we're firing on all cylinders. I've, I've got all like healthy practices. But what's the focus there? That's all internal. That's all me. That's all my life. And Jesus is saying, do those things, but do them as a way of focusing on the weightier matters of the law, which are what? Justice and mercy and faithfulness. All right, you know why those, I think why Jesus calls those out as being weightier matters of the law? Because they cost us something. Right? The, being able to like tithe and get our lives together and running on biblical principles, that costs us very, very little, right? It's just and it can be very self-serving. Justice and mercy and faithfulness, they cost us time, <laughs> energy, resources, convenience. Right? You could just go down the list. They cost us something. They, are, they, they require us to put our skin on the line. Right? We can, at times, be more devoted to our personal interests, which could be, we could be more devoted to the gym or more devoted to anything else than we are to Jesus and his generosity. Uh, to quote David Pickney, people are more devoted to the gym than they are to Jesus, <laughs> which I will gladly receive that correction from David Pickney. The gospel has ramifications. Jesus coming to save us has an effect on our neighborhoods and lives. Jesus' orientation here is that justice and mercy and faithfulness, they all involve sacrifice because at the heart of God's life with us is God's sacrifice of his son. God lived out justice and mercy and faithfulness, doesn't, didn't he? He executed on his own son the justice that we deserve. He gives us mercy 
because of Jesus dying in our place. He shows us his long suffering and faithfulness with us because Jesus, in this week, as we're going to see in the book of Matthew, suffered countless offenses, was rejected, and yet still was faithful both to God and to his people. Right? Justice, mercy, and faithfulness, caring about the well being of others, that requires the humility of a servant to pursue others and to understand their needs and to lean into those. Humble servants care about the well-being of others. All right, we're going to pick up here. Verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside are full of greed and indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup of the plate, that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead bones, of dead people's bones and all unclean. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. We're going to call this the religious loves the external evaluation of others. Humble servants want the inner purging of God. I, this, this section almost feels kind of like we don't have to talk about it because it feels so familiar. And this is probably why I can think of several of my friends who aren't Christians that they despise the church because they look at us and they say, you guys are all a bunch of hypocrites. You guys say one thing and you do another. And and the reality is in many many situations, we just heard from uh, one of the testimonies for our uh, baptisms. This This is a major problem that we are consistently facing as just Christians in general, right? Where we, we, we have lives on the outside that check off all the boxes, but internally we have no life of God, right? There, there's total hypocrisy on the inside. This almost is a parable in and of itself, right? Where it's an illustration with, that needs very little explanation. People who say one thing and do another, right? Like preachers who will say, if you love God, he's a generous God, then give and then God will bless you. It's because the pastors are greedy and self-indulgent, right? Or unfortunately, how many times do we hear of pastors who will preach the goodness of God and then have moral failings that are atrocious? This is a sobering passage, right? This is where I think in the first one, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup, but an internally full of greed and indulgence. Jesus is going after the motivations, right? You say one thing and want another thing. And then there's the one with the tombs. You say one thing and you are a different thing. See, Jesus wants his people to be experiencing the inner life of God. And what's going on in both of these these condemnations that Jesus is going after? He's not angry that it's not a problem per se that somebody is greedy and self-indulgent. It's a problem when they stay there and love it. It's not a problem so to speak, to reject God. It's a problem when you reject God and you love it. It's one thing to sin against God. It's another thing to sin and to sit there and just, I want this. And then Jesus is also saying, you can do that with a religious veneer, right? (laughs) You can reject God and still be going to church. Jesus is calling his humble servants to want the inner purging of God 
to confess sin, to love the goodness of God, right? God is not somebody that is out um, this side of heaven to destroy you for your sin. He has provided an escape. He has provided a solution. He has provided healing and grace for people who are broken and dirtbags like us so that we can confess our sins and find grace and healing now. That's how God wants to help us by purging us on the inside. That's not saying he wants to get rid of your personality and make you all little clones of Jacob. <laughs> Heaven forbid that should ever happen. Gosh, we've, got enough, we've got enough problems with just one Jacob in the room, right? God is after changing you as who you are and all your personality quotes, quirks and, and blessings and goodness to be purged of sin, to grow in him because he wants to get rid of all the, the nastiness and gunk on the inside so that we can be filled with all of the goodness of who God is on the inside, right? This is, we talk about this from 1 John. Here we throw this up. 1 John commends this practice to us. 1 John 1, 7 and 9. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, if we walk with God and have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sins. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, right? That's, that's what Jesus is going after in these verses here. People who are self-deceived about what's going on in the inside. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I had a friend once who would, uh, in the course of a conversation, he would just gently ask, like, hey, is there anything that you need to confess? Because he cared about my internal life. He cared about my life with God. This is maybe something in our community groups or missional communities or just in our times together, like, hey, is there, is there anything going on in your life that you just feel like, you know, I need to confess this? Not because we're trying to be like, like keep track of sin for each other and then send a report into the pastors. <laughs> but because we care, there is just, as a normal part of our life, we, we are going to get tripped up and ensnared by idols and sins. Is there something you need to confess? Because what, what does the Bible promise? Jesus, when we confess what's going on on the inside, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Why? Because the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And then he, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Right? This is the purging that God loves to do in his people. Right? The Holy Spirit, uh, one of the Puritans calls the Holy Spirit the beautifier of the soul. Right? He is eager to change us, to be more like the humble servant Jesus. All right, let's pick up in verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you, buy, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would have not taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murder the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that you may come, so that on you may come all the righteous blood on earth, shed from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. So here's Jesus is saying. Um, you build monuments and you build traditions and you honor all these guys that your forefathers killed 
um, because they were they were they were going against the status quo, right? The way the prophets work is there's a status quo of disobedience to God. Prophets come and they say uh, this is not right. Uh, God, these God's people shouldn't be doing this. Um, you know, they do a protest and they say, you know, they make sermons and teach against it, and then they get killed for it. Uh, but they do kind of move the status quo. And then the, the next generation says, hey, that guy was actually like a really good guy. We should build a monument. But they're just the, son, they're just the inheritors of the status quo, right? They are the people that uh, are building up and honoring the very people uh, that they themselves would have killed. Um, they are building a monument to the past, to an idealized past that they would have liked. Tradition becomes a monument in many of these situations, tradition becomes a monument to defended at all costs to dis- defend the status quo. You see, Jesus is drawing their attention to like, what you guys are saying, you're all for God's house and his faith, but God's messengers, you killed them all. And then because you realize some religious dynamic there, you built the monument for them. We, have, we often do this in the church, um, by memorializing and building monuments to old things, um, probably because uh, that's actually where God met us in the past. Like there was actually like an experience of God in that moment in the past. But then it becomes something where when we, those, the, the life of the church begins to change, uh, we begin to be very nervous <laughs> and feel like it's being de- our experience of God in those moments in the past are devaluated or weren't important. The changing of the times feels like we're saying that those things in the past didn't matter. Like, for example, this last week at our missional community, um, it was music time with Jacob, and we went through 90s tracks from the uh, and we just went down the list, music from the 90s, and certain members of our missional community, whom I will not name, who are younger than me, did not know <laughs> who any of these artists were. They had no idea. And I felt in that moment, but, but you're saying that these songs are unimportant. Of course, that's probably what they were saying, right? Who cares about Third Eye Blind or Dave Matthews or any of these guys from the 90s? They are not important. You see, what happens in our religious context is we say, we really love this preacher or this type of church or this style of worship or these fixtures, and God has met us there. But then we live there, and we neglect that God is continually beginning to live with us and address us and change us, Right? So we build a monument to that rather than seeing in those moments, God was there and he's still here and we would rather delight in the king who is there and the king who's here with us now rather than just kind of fixtures of that situation in the past. Is that that tracking? You see, Jesus is drawing, this is a constant dynamic for us where we continually memorialize the past, where we we continually look back and say, if only we'd lived then, (laughs) things would be better, right? The good old days. But God, who was there, is with us now. And in this story of Jesus, they are rejecting God's presence. We must continually remind our hearts, we exist to delight in God himself, in Jesus, and not in the historical dynamics of what that looks like. Whatever that's been for us. The humble king continues to lead his people to be humble because he dwells with us, right? He is the one who pursues us and dwells with us. 
to help us to be humbled by his presence. So let's finish out this passage here. Jesus, you can almost feel the tears coming down his face. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who aren't seen, sent to it. How often have I gathered your children together? How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing? See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus here is walking out for this final moment, leaving Jerusalem behind, this final breakup moment of the song, and tears are coming down his face. Because just as he would have gathered together all of Israel, gathered together his people, let, let out his arms to bring them under him, to care for them, he will again walk into Jerusalem and fulfill his promise to redeem and save his people. His arms will be nailed down. He will die the death that they deserve. He will come and gather his people together, but it will be at his own life. He will die in their place so that he can accomplish this mission to bring together the people of God so that they who have rejected him, who have been proud and religious and rejected the king, he will lay out his arms and he will be tortured and punished so that they could receive the blessing that comes from being in the presence of God. All right, Psalm 118, actually the full verse says, this is Jesus quoting Psalm 118, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. You see, Jesus himself is the very presence of God with us. Jesus himself is the very location where God makes atonement for our sins, where God deals with all of our sins. Jesus himself is where God gives us his grace for all the broken realities of our life so that Jesus, and not a building, and not a tradition, Jesus himself becomes a location of God's grace for us. This is, so Jesus is walking out and saying, this temple is going to be destroyed, and so will I, but that temple won't raise itself back to life. I will. So that for all of our temptations and our veering into religious life apart from God, Jesus died for all that stuff too. So that all the ways in which maybe as we're talking through this, you're seeing, I need to be somebody that uh, I, I'm seeing religious dynamics that lack God. Jesus died for those ways in which we've offended God as well. So that we could be humble servants under him. He Let's just kind of re revisit this real quick. The humble king, he dies so that he can create a new people, right? The humble servant thrives by proving God's goodness, his character. The humble servants are guided by God's character. Humble servants care about the well-being of others. Humble servants want the inner purging of God. Humble servants delight in the king, right? Because this, this life that Jesus is building for his people is focused on him, it's not built so that we can feel better about ourselves. It's built around him so that we reflect our humble king. The call of this passage for people like us is to humbly follow the humble king. In him we find life, not because we've earned it or proved that we earn it, but because he gave his life 
humbly dying so that we could be humbled by his goodness to us. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this passage together, I pray that you would help us to be humbled by your nearness to us, humbled that Jesus would die for us. And Father, I pray that we would be people who walk with you and are humble servants, reflecting your goodness, your character, your love and goodness to those around us. Father, help us to be humbled by your nearness to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.